Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today we have the opportunity, and I think it's going to be an honor to interview and learn from the life story of a gentleman named Cal Ripken Jr. As we get ready to start our baseball season, we've been holding on to this podcast episode for a while because I think maybe more than anybody else, Cal Ripken Jr. represents baseball. He certainly represents resiliency and dedication and discipline. It's a story that you're going to love today. And there were two ideas that were shared by Cal during this episode in particular that really stuck with me. Number one is this. Cal Ripken Jr. is one of the great baseball players of all time. He's a Hall of Famer. He broke Lou Gehrig's long-standing record of consecutive games played. You're going to learn about that. But I asked him who one of his great heroes was thinking that it would be his dad. His dad was a ball player. And yet Cal's answer was, it was my mom. It was my mom. And if you think about why, while dad was on the road pursuing his dream and playing Major League Baseball, little Cal Ripken Jr. was taken everywhere, was taken to school, back from school, to ball practice, back home from ball practice, cooked meals, asked how his day was, prepared for the next day, not by his dad, but by his mom. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us that uh, the work you do matters and that people are paying attention. So for those of you who are staying home today uh, in this environment with little ones, recognize that they are better because of you, that they are better because of you and they are, they're going to remember you long after this season passes. So uh, recognize that today. And then secondly, one of the great influences in his life, a guy named Ernie Tyler, he did his job well. I asked Cal about showing up day after day after day for 2,130 consecutive games. It's an unbelievable streak that he played in. And then he told the story about an umpire attendant who worked for the Orioles named Ernie Tyler, a guy you would have never heard of, a guy who did ordinary work and did it extraordinarily well. Ernie went 31 years without missing a day of work. 31 years. He worked 3,819 consecutive games without missing a day of work. And when he finally did miss a day, here's why he missed it. He missed it so he could take off a Sunday to participate at Cooperstown in New York at a National Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony for a guy named Cal Ripken Jr., it's a cool story. My friends, during this conversation, you're going to hear about parenting. You're going to hear about practice. You're going to hear about games. You're going to hear about setbacks. You're going to hear about loss. You're going to hear about rebounding forward. You're going to hear about why you strive to do great things and why ultimately it's important sometimes to let it go. You're going to hear an awful lot, not just about baseball, but about life. And so here's my suggestion to you right now. Go ahead and get ready to share this with your friends. Go ahead and get ready to tell your neighbors about the Live Inspired podcast because they're going to want to hear this one. Go ahead and get your journal out. Get some notes ready to be taken because there's a lot to learn from the baseball great, the Iron Man himself. His name is Kyle Ripken Jr. And during a season when so many of us face so many challenges, to be reminded of endurance 
to be reminded of pushing through difficulty, to be reminded of the power of resiliency and discipline and the fact that you belong, the foundation is firm, and the best is yet to come. This is a big part of Cal Ripken Jr.'s message. So my friends, buckle up, get ready for the ride as we bring on batting first today, leadoff hitter, and my friend, his name, Cal Ripken Jr. Cal, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Oh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. Cal, on September 6, 1995, a lifetime ago, almost 25 years ago, I was in college at a bar here in St. Louis called BBC. Don't judge, Cal. And I remember where I was on that date for one reason. You, Cal Ripken Jr., are the reason why. So can you tell our listeners where you were on September 6, 1995? Yeah, September 6, 1995. And uh, if you think about it, uh, it's coming up on 25 years. Where does, where does time go? Right. But September 6, 1995 for me was a celebration of breaking a record, a, uh, an, an attendance record of sorts, um, a consecutive games record that was held by Lou Gehrig. I played in my 2,131st game, breaking Lou Gehrig's record of 2,130. It was hard to believe the celebration, and maybe it was because of the times. The, uh, there was a strike in baseball, then there was a cancellation of the World Series the year before, and then all of a sudden, 1995 was a year where I think the fans of baseball were, were kind of mad, mm. and they were looking for something good to attach to. The connection between uh, you know the sport when it was thought of as a game, maybe not as a big-time form of entertainment, people had a good good feeling about that, and, and they attached it to this celebration for the record. So as, as it built on... September 6th was the day that, that the record was broken. And uh, it was a wonderful celebration, which uh, had me take a lap around the ballpark. <laughs> it had me stand up and wave for 22 minutes uh, while people kept clapping. Um, it was something that no one could have choreographed, uh, you know, that sort of celebration and the outpouring of love uh, at that point for the game of baseball and, and a little towards me. So it was a wonderful celebration. I'm so glad you brought it up. Even the idea of 22 minutes of a standing ovation. You seemed not bothered, but uh, humbled and almost anxious. Like you felt undeserving of it just by looking at you, watching you as you took that lap, as you sat in the dugout, not even wanting to go out there yet. What what was it like for you to get that ovation? At first, I was embarrassed. I would have preferred if I had a way to make it all work out the way I wanted it to. The, the Orioles would have been playing for a pennant hmm. and the record uh, breaking day would have been a side story that we would have been out there playing and these games are meaningful and uh, the focus would have been totally on the outcome of the games. But as luck would have it, uh, and maybe we weren't, we weren't too lucky, we fell out of the uh, playoff hunt um, in early September. We were playing the California Angels who were uh, in the in the playoff hunt and that made it important because I wanted to have the the game means something, not just a uh, show up again and you play any old game. I wanted the games uh, to be important and the emphasis should be on the game. When the game became official at the halfway point, uh, five innings, depending upon who was winning four and a half or five, at that point, the game became official at four and a half. We had a lead in the ball game. The people kept clapping. I kept coming <laughs> out for a, a curtain call and then a third curtain call and then a fourth one. And I kept uh, waving to everyone in the stands. I had some really great moments within that 22 minutes where I looked up and caught my dad's eye. He was in a skybox. And my dad wasn't someone that showed his love or even said, I love you. You know, that was a different generation. Uh, But I knew he did. 
And there was a thousand words that went between uh, him and I just in that split second um, in the celebration. Um, I got to celebrate it with my kids in the middle of that. My brother Billy uh, was in the stands right there. There were a lot of really good friends that were in the, in the first few rows that had been there pretty much my whole career. So uh, there were some special, special moments in there, but I was embarrassed. It was almost like as if I wanted to say, hey, look, I'll celebrate you as celebrate with you as long as you want after the game was over let's just get this game going mm. um it's not fair it's not fair to the pitcher it's not fair to the angels it's not fair we shouldn't be stopping the game in the middle we should be playing the game and that, that that's how I, I felt so when i got pushed down the line to make a lap around the stadium uh two <laughs> of my teammates thought it was a good idea bobby Bo, uh bobby bonilla and rafael palmero they pushed me down and said, look, we'll never get this game started unless you take a lap around the ballpark. <laughs> and I think that was the last thing on my mind that I wanted to do. But as I did it, it, t- it took the celebration from 50,000 strong, approximately, mm. to uh, a one-on-one, a more personal uh, celebration where you had, you, you had a chance to look into other people's eyes. Um, they were all happy. They were wishing you well. I recognized some faces. I recognized some names. Um, and as I went around the stadium, tried to shake uh, the hands of everyone in the first row, my pace was pretty fast early because I was thinking, let's get this over with. And then as I got into it, um, I was at a virtual walk and I kept thinking, I don't care if this game ever starts. This is, this is too good. So there's been a lot of great moments on a baseball field. And uh, I think I could categorize some of my better moments uh, by actually playing. But uh, this was probably the best human moment that I had on the field where um, there was a connection between um, me and uh, the people in the stands that was unlike anything else that I've ever experienced. Mm. From that bar, as a college student, it was applauded not only by your friends in Baltimore, the fans who grew up with you, who cheered you, but by a nation who loved baseball. What, in your own opinion, Cal, do you think that we were applauding? What was it about what you had accomplished that we thought was worth standing up and cheering for 22 consecutive minutes? I'm analytical. I try to analyze and understand things to the nth degree. I think it was one of my greatest uh, strengths, but it also can be a weakness because it kind of can paralyze you. But uh, when I look back on it, and for a long time, I only wanted to look at it through my eyes because I experienced it from a unique position where I didn't want to watch it on TV and then and, and think something else might have happened. But when I think about the meaning and what, what happened there, I think there was a factor that the ugly side of the business uh, showed itself in baseball and it really uh, hurt the baseball fans. And I think they were really looking for something to attach to that was good. Baseball makes you feel a certain way if you're a fan of it. There's a family sort of relationship between father and son, father and daughter, mother and family. You know, they share those sort of experiences that uh, we all relate to. So I think that was a factor. Everyone was looking for something to believe in from baseball at that point. The second thing, I think, and I found this out going through the whole process, was that people can really relate to a streak Hmm. in their own lives because everybody shared their streak with me. Hmm. Like a kid would say, I I didn't miss a day of school from pre-first or kindergarten all the way through uh, high school. That was my streak. I didn't miss a day of work, you know, for 31 years. I went in and did this job every single day. It was important to go in. And so there was a there was this feeling that everybody could relate to um, a commitment, a streak of their own, uh, the importance of showing up every single day and right. accomplishing something and making themselves feel like they accomplished it. So I think that's what the streak um, meant to teachers and workers. And I think my one of my favorite stories was Ernie Tyler. 
Ernie Tyler, I don't know if you remember who that was. He was the umpire attendant, and he also he took the baseballs to the umpires. The Tyler family is a great family, but they've been around the ballpark um, since Memorial Stadium, I think, from the beginning. Hmm. Freddie Tyler was the visiting clubhouse guy. Jimmy Tyler was the home clubhouse guy. Ernie Tyler took care of the umpires and the balls. Ernie did not miss a home game for 31 straight years. But his streak ended when I went into the Hall of Fame. He voluntarily missed the home game so he could come to my uh, Hall of Fame induction, which was really special and really cool. But, you know, inside of him, it was important for him to do his job and do it uh, well. And I think when people really start to think about um, their own lives and the commitments that they put forward in their own lives to work or for people, I think that made a connection. And people really looked inside themselves and maybe were proud of themselves for what they had, they had accomplished in whatever direction they decided to go. As September 6th faded towards September 7th, you approached the microphone and gave in front of the fans, I think one of the most gracious speeches I've ever heard. When the game numbers on the warehouse changed during the fifth innings over the past several weeks, the fans in this ballpark responded incredibly. I'm not sure that my reactions showed how I really felt. I just didn't know what to do. Tonight, I want to make sure you know how I feel. As I grew up here, I not only had dreams of being a big league ball player, but also of being a Baltimore Oriole. As a boy and a fan, I know how passionate we feel about baseball and the Orioles here. And as a player, I have benefited from this passion. For all of your support over the years, I want to thank you, the fans of Baltimore, from the bottom of my heart. This is the greatest place to play. When you approached that microphone, the gravitas of the moment, kind of knowing what you'd been part of and uh, what you were about to share, what, what emotions did you have before you said the first word, Cal? Wow. I think when um, the realization happened that I was going to have to say something or make some sort of remarks, it was first a little bothersome and a little nervous. I'm thinking, you know, I can play in front of 50,000 people, but uh, I don't want to stand behind a microphone and talk you know, the 50,000 people and then how many more millions that are watching on TV. So that was a little intimidating to me at first. And then I started to think about it was an opportunity to deliver a message. Uh, and then I had to ask myself, what message do I want to deliver? So I sat down and worked on it, um, uh, you know, as a speech. And of course, you want to thank everybody that was in your whole life. It's the same feeling when you go to the Hall of Fame yeah. is that you review your life and you got to figure out why you're here and how you got here and who was instrumental. And you have a long list of people that were, were helpful. But in that moment at September 6th, um, after the game was over, I had, I had really uh, pushed it down just just a few people, not to leave anybody else out, but the people that were really uh, important. I identified um, Eddie Murray mm-hmm. to some people's surprise. But the hardest one, wow, the hardest one was talking about my mom. 
I noted that. Your, your voice inflected when you brought up your mom. And so I was going to ask you about why that was. So uh, Eddie Murray got a huge ovation, but where I heard your voice crack <sighs> was when you talked about your mom. What was it about Vi that stirred something within you? Well, the importance of her in my life. Most people think I grew up in a professional family, professional baseball family, and that my dad worked with me nonstop. You know, he made me into a baseball player. But the actual truth was he had his own career. Baseball occupied all of his time. And it took my dad away from me in many ways. So many times when all the other kids had their dads there for games, uh, for school events and all that kind of stuff, my mom was the, was that person that played the role of my dad and my mom. She was there to put your arm around you when things didn't go well. She was there to lift you up and celebrate when you did. So the importance of her in your lives and then trying to actually say how important that was um, I couldn't get through the words. I had to practice it like uh, 150 times just to get through that part and and take some of the emotion out because it was uh, it was that meaningful. And even now, you know, I kind of relive the whole feeling when I'm talking to you right now is that you start to get this feeling that comes over you that's emotional. It's good stuff and it should be. But uh, that was the hard part. But I uh, I thought. Um, at first, maybe the moment would come to me and I would have the right words at the right moment. And therefore, I wouldn't have to work on a speech. But uh, knowing me, I wanted to actually organize it and structure it a little bit and, and do okay at it. Um, and I think it came off uh, pretty well. And I was able to <laughs> articulate some things that uh, I wanted to articulate. That it came off beautifully. And I had not listened to it in years in preparing for this interview to listen to that, to listen to not only what you said, but how you said it. And then the, what people don't realize for speakers is it's a conversation. It's not a, it's not a one-way deal. Like, so as you know, Cal, I'm a, I'm a speaker. That's part of my job. And I think the sure. audience frequently thinks that I'm talking at them. And the reality is it is a two-way street, man. We are having this conversation together. I can see you. You can see me. I can hear you. You can hear me. And to hear the audience at the stadium respond to you and cheer you and respond to your dad, which was great. But the ovation they gave your mom, very stirring. Your family is a big part of your story. Billy, of course, a baseball player in and of his own right, another uh, well-known guy. But but I want to talk briefly about two who are less well-known, Ellen and Fred. Yeah. So, you know, in life, when you have the kind of life that you had and your father had and Billy had, the light is shining very brightly on part of the Ripken family. And what can sometimes happen is there's a whole nother side that seems to live in some regards in the shadows. So mm -hmm. celebrate Ellen and Fred for a little bit. What, what, what are they like? And what was life like for them growing up with two famous siblings and a famous father? I've thought about that from time to time. I try to uh, put myself in their shoes sometimes and think about what they would say or how they would feel about it. But I don't think neither one of them did affected their lives or bothered their lives in a negative way. And I know my brother Fred was really proud of me. I remember in the beginning when I went to Memorial Stadium, he would come down to the games um, and then he would sit off, he'd wait till after the game was over and I would come out. In Memorial Stadium, they didn't have a parking lot for the players. Um, they developed one a little bit later on, but it was you parked in the uh, front section where everybody else parked. Hmm. So when you came out of the ballpark, you were walking through the fans to your car. And a lot of times the, my car would get surrounded by uh, fans. and I would sign the autographs and stuff. My brother Fred would sit back and watch and he would be proud of that. And he would admire that sort of relationship. Some of it was people watching, you know, he yeah. was curious about all the things that were happening, 
But I know in his heart that he was he was very proud of, of how things had gone and uh, how I how uh, I had worked to that point. So I remember I remember him in that regard. He was a year younger than me. In many ways, he was a natural athlete, kind of a rough athlete in a way because he didn't play and put time in. He stopped playing baseball around 11. You know, we were on the same team for a little while. I was always slightly better statistically anyway, but he had a, a certain athleticism that I didn't have. He had uh, some quickness and speed. Um, and uh, even today, I think if he would pick up a bat and walk into a cage, you know, 40 some years uh, um, after the last time he did it, he would probably have reasonable success in the batting cage. And, and, uh, and uh, could, because he, he sort of was a natural athlete that way. But he took up my dad's side. My dad had a mechanical side. As a kid, he was interested in how things worked, how things put together. He fixed uh, lawnmowers with my dad. He laid under the car with my dad when, when my dad was uh, fixing uh, the car. Smelled like gasoline. His hands were always grease-filled, you know, even when he came to the table uh, sometimes. I remember also laying under there, and they were at, both asking me to hand them wrenches. And I said, I said, do you guys really need me? You know, because there's, <laughs> there's a pickup basketball game down the street or something. Right. I think he loved his time with uh, his dad that way. He's very mechanically inclined. And you know, in his lifetime, he owned a uh, motorcycle uh, shop. Um, he worked in the back of the shop and also in the front. Um, he worked on a drag racing team where they drag, drag race motorcycles. And he, uh, he worked on um, retrofitting parts to get a little bit more, out of, more speed um, out of the motorcycle. Um, he put motorcycles together and test drove them. So if they said they would go 130 miles an hour, he tested it at 130. Wow. <laughs> so it was different that way, but he was, uh, he's very skilled that way. My, my sister, Ellen, we called her Ellie. Sometimes when we were uh, young, you know, uh, nicknames, uh, smelly Ellie and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But uh, I really looked up to Ellie. Ellie was a year older than me. She was a three-letter star athlete, softball, basketball, and volleyball. And so she made the varsity and then lettered in all four years in each sport. She was a stud. And I remember when I first uh, made the varsity baseball team as a freshman, I was undersized, 5'7", 128. Mm. I always remember that because I was made to get on the scale in front of my whole team as a freshman in my underwear. And when they announced 5'7", 128, everybody burst out laughing. That number is stuck in my uh, head uh, pretty good. And for our but listeners, Cal, who may not, they may not know your physical physique today and, and oh, your playing weight. How, uh, how yeah. tall did you grow? And how, <laughs> you, you grew a little bit past the five seven uh, weigh-in. Yeah, you know, I won't tell you what I weigh now. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm six four, almost six five. When I was drafted out of high school, I was six two and one eighty, uh-huh. and so I've had a late growth spurt, went up to almost six five, and I played my pro career in between 225 and 230. Now I'm a little bit heavier than that. Uh, uniform would have muscle, a little bit. Muscle uh, weighs more than kidding. fat, Cal. That's just what it is, man. That's true. And we'll, we'll leave it at that. But when I thought, think about my sister, um, she had a better arm than me for a long time. And she threw the ball harder than I did. And I had to catch up. And I was always aspiring to, uh, to do some of the things that she did um, when she played softball. But most memorable was uh, our baseball team was horrible and the girls' softball team was great. You know, so we would go on a trip together. The varsity baseball team and the varsity softball team traveled together. So we went to play a game, and after our game was over, I would hit ninth in the order. Um, I might have a sacrifice bunt, a strikeout, and uh, a jam job ground out. And my sister would be uh, five for five with two homers and two doubles and eight RBIs. They had a festive sort of feeling, 
and my sister was surrounded by all the uh, softball players, you know, celebrating that. And I was mm-hmm. sitting in the back of the bus, a little embarrassed that uh, that I wasn't a better player. So when I think about it, my sister wished she, she could play baseball. And so she was that good of an athlete, and she's continued to be athletic. She bowls now regularly, and she's darn near a professional bowler. She has, I think she has three perfect games under her belt. I think she was uh, averaging about 210 or 215 in her and she's won, she's won some tournaments, so she's slightly below pro level, but she's always competitive and she always is a team-oriented person. So uh, when I think about her, she's very popular. I think also my brother Fred and my sister, you know, I came from the small town of Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. And part of myself, uh, I was curious and I wanted to find out what else was out there. My dad managed in uh, the minor leagues for the first 14 years of my life, which took us to many different places in the country, all the way from the West Coast state of Washington, all the way down to Miami, Florida, and many, many places in between. And I was always curious about that. So I think I, I was one that couldn't wait to, to get out of Aberdeen and move on and uh, discover other places. I think Billy had a little bit of that too, although Billy lives in Harford County, not far from where, uh, where we grew up. But my sister and my brother Fred were totally happy and totally content being in Aberdeen. And so it seems like they've been there the whole time. They're going to stay there the whole time. Mm -hmm. And they just seem to be content. But uh, there's a lot to look up to in both my sister and my brother, Fred. You got out. You did explore. You get drafted by your boyhood team, man, the the Orioles. When did you realize that you belonged? There's a difference between getting drafted, playing minor leagues, even being called up and feeling as if you're among peers. And they actually, uh, they have some competition now in the clubhouse. There's a lot of phases of your own confidence. When I first joined the uh, varsity baseball team as a freshman, I think I made it by default. They didn't have second baseman, and uh, I could catch and throw uh, at least from second base consistently to first base. So I provided a uh, a role. And then as I started to get my size and I started to grow, then in, in, as a junior year in high school, my dad pulled me aside and he says, I think you're going to have an opportunity for a pro career. And my dad thought at right around 16 years of age, he could evaluate and judge the potential of uh, different players. I threw the ball hard. I pitched. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, uh, I was coming to my own. And so I did get drafted after my senior year. And I went away to rookie ball. I was 17 years old. And I was turning 18 at the end of that summer. I guess I wasn't even old enough to go to a bar at that time. You had to be 18 years old. I had a big buildup coming into Bluefield, West Virginia, so everybody knew how old I was, which has probably probably served me well. <laughs> but looking around, you had you had players. You were a big fish. Now I was I was a big fish in a small pond, and then all of a sudden you're drafted and you're put with other big fish, sometimes really big fish. And I, there was a shortstop by the name of Bob Bonner that came out of Texas A&M. And I took ground balls behind him, and I thought he was the greatest player I've ever seen. He could do things that I thought I can't do. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to play. Now, they placed him in the wrong place in rookie ball at the beginning uh, because he had played, uh, I guess, almost five years of college baseball down at Texas A&M. And he went on to go to double-A, uh, and I think he went to triple-A um, at the end of that year. So they, played, they moved him up really quickly. The funny part about that was in two years, I caught up to him. And the irony is he was destined to be the shortstop of the Orioles. And then I passed him and I became the shortstop of the Orioles. I was not as confident when I went away to play pro ball. But when you start to look around, there is such things as your internal competition that is really valuable, just like the competition you have across the field when you're when you're playing against another team. You have to actually 
look around and measure yourself against your own team, you know, the people that are around you and, and what you see every single day. And as I started to have some success and I started to believe that I was the best option to play at shortstop, uh, even though I made 30 some errors in 60 games in Bluefield, I started to look around and I started to think, okay, I'm a, I am belong. And my dad's advice, which is really interesting, and I just thought of this, he would say, wherever they send you, know that you belong. Now, that's, that's not a real definitive statement or one that you really can understand until you start to experience it. You start to look around and you go, I do belong part of this team. And once you um, have that confidence, then you can start to develop and then you'll see your true potential, which um, I continue to get better and, and, and was fast-tracked to the big leagues. And I got to the big leagues before my 21st birthday. So then it's another step. You, you step up to the big leagues and you look around and go, wow, I'm in the big leagues. You know, these guys are really great. I don't belong. <laughs> and then you have to prove to yourself that you do belong. How important is that voice in your mind, Cal, that's whispering whether you belong or you don't? When you walk up to a plate, how critical is it that you believe that, yes, indeed, I can beat this guy? I had great winter balls a year. I, uh, I, was, I had a great power year in double A and the triple A. I got off to a fast start and I was, I was a triple crown candidate as a 20-year-old in, in Rochester, New York. But then all of a sudden you get to the big leagues and you look around and all the people that you've watched are suddenly there and you, right. you question yourself again. And so uh, I was three for five opening day. If you remember right, they traded Doug DeSensei in the offseason and they opened up a third base position for me. Uh, Bob Bonner was still projected as the shortstop there and I came into third base. I was three for five opening day and hit a home run, hit a double. Um, and I thought that it was just going to be the same as um, all the other last couple stops that I made. And then I went four for my next 63, <laughs> which uh, if you add it, up, add it up, it's seven for 68. And seven for 68 is just a hair over 100. I think it was 128 <laughs> was your batting average. When you look up on the big boards and see your picture up there and you see 128, right. Rookie. It, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make you feel too confident. There were some people in the league that embraced me. Earl Weaver was, uh, he had a personality where he was fiery and would say whatever's on his mind and he would be, uh, he didn't care if you liked him or not. And he had this reputation of being hard, but he was very empathetic to me. He almost put his arm around me and had a meeting with me uh, every other day saying, I'm not going to send you down. You already proved you can do it at the other level. I'm going to back you um, all the way here, which turned out to be a really good thing because if I had a different manager, the path might've been different, Mm. but he stuck by me. And I got through it. Reggie Jackson took a special interest in me. It was kind of weird. I was playing the California Angels. Earl was out arguing a play that the umpire had, I think, at second base. I was playing third. Reggie got to third base, and Reggie called me over and said, kid, come on over here. And basically, he gave me a little pep talk saying, you've done it everywhere else you've been. This is just the next step. So just be yourself. Don't try to do what everybody else does. Just be yourself. And that sort of voted confidence. I got a couple of cheap hits uh, in the next game, and then I was off to the races. Ended up with 28 homers and close to 100 RBIs, and I uh, was voted Rookie of the Year after my first year after that rough start. And then getting your feet on the ground and, and believing that you could play. The next year, I was the MVP, hit over 300. And we won the World Series. And so I had a pretty good foundation which to believe in myself after those first two years. Cal, when did it go from being a reliable guy who's in the lineup every day and just, you know, a good guy to have on your club, produces all this stuff and he does it every day, day in and day out, into being more? When did you go from being a guy like a Craig Biggio or just a reliable ball player to being someone that people identified as, gosh, 
if this guy can only do this for a few more years, 10 more years, there's a chance that he's going to take down a record that no one ever thought would be broken. <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody thought of uh, a record, you know, that I didn't set out to break Lou Gehrig's record. I thought it was important. To, it was important to my dad that you were the kind of player that would be relied on every day, that you were a gamer, that you were, you came to the ballpark today to meet the challenges of whatever today was. And an everyday player was every day. It wasn't, you know, now maybe the definition of an everyday player might be 140 games. Right. I don't know. And, and, and it's okay to miss a few games and freshen up. Back in that time, the schedule was really tough and everybody knew it was tough. And the playoffs could boil down to one game. And the one game could be won in April, May, June, or lost in April, May, or June, depending upon whether you played or not. I was counted on very early on to be in the middle of the lineup. You know, and my halfway through my uh, rookie year, Earl started hitting me third. And that was where Ken Singleton was hitting. He was a switch hitter at that time. He moved him back to fifth. Eddie was our fourth hitter. So you felt the uh, team and the manager was relying on you not only to hit in the middle of the order, but also to play. He moved me uh, the shortstop to play shortstop. And all of a sudden you felt like you were a, an important part of the team and your job was to come to the, to the game each and every day ready to play. And the manager just chose me. So I would have rather had more hits than Pete Rose or more homers than Hank Aaron. <laughs> you know, um, when you're looking at it from that standpoint, being young, my numbers were pretty good. And if, if you did the splits and said, you know, guy, he might hit 500 home runs or he might do this and that, all those things were kind of exciting. My dad kept me grounded by saying, you're a pretty good player now. You're an all-star player. But the true test is over time. You want to be good for a long time. You want to stay around the big leagues for a long time. And I think that was sort of my goal is to take it one day at a time and try to do them as much as you can so that you would, at the end of your career, you wouldn't look back and say, I wish I would have played more. Well, 2,632 games later, you indeed did take it one day, one game at a time. September 20th, 1998. Talk, talk about that date and what it means for you, what you were feeling. Yeah, that's the day that uh, I had the streak come to an end. After the streak, it almost seemed like the streak had a mind of its own. Um, I passed Lou Gehrig's record by 500, so it went to 2,632 games. And in some ways, you know, all good things have to come to an end. In some ways, you felt like it was just time. You know, whether uh, we were in another rebuilding mode and there was choices that were made for personnel on the team. Some managers felt like they had their hands tied and they had to play me in some ways. And I kept thinking, well, that's wrong. That's a weakness in the manager if the manager feels like uh, he can't make all the decisions. And so I, I looked at it uh, really hard, and I, th I thought, if we fall out of the pennant race, and that was 1998, if we fall out of the pennant race, uh, then I'll take it into my own hands, I'll end the streak, and I'll put it back to where it was in the very beginning, where the manager has to sit in his office and decide who he picks on a daily basis. And I kept thinking to myself, you're still going to pick me, um, but I'll, we'll just start over at uh, game number one. The question was, when do you do that? And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do it the last day of the season, and then we'll just go into the off season, and then it'll, it'll reset and restart itself all by itself. The last day of the season was in Boston in that year. And uh, I shared my comments with, with a couple people close to me. Some of the advice uh, back was that, well, wait a minute, you know, everybody has celebrated this accomplishment, um, not necessarily for the streak, but they, for the principle of it. And if you're going to end it, you should end it at home yeah. and make it a celebration, not a, just a, an act that resets it. The last game at home was against the New York Yankees. 
I told no one that uh, that was going to be the game. And I walked in the manager's office 10 minutes before the game started. I was in the lineup. Everything was normal. And I told him that today's the day, you know, I'm taking myself out of the lineup. He looked at me. Ray Miller looked at me with a blank look on his face and wasn't sure what to do. <laughs> Called the public relations guy. Came down in the office. Uh, changed the lineup. But I told him, I said, look, the reason I'm telling you 10 minutes before the game is that I, I want to deal with it after the game. I don't want to have it affect how we play the game and have to answer questions before that. You know, just let it unfold naturally, and then I'll talk about it afterwards. And sure enough, as the game, as we took the field, the uh, New York Yankees realized, I think Joe Torre realized, uh, Boomer Wells, I think, yeah. was on that team. Derek Jeter looked over, and they kind of looked at him, how come you not out in the field? How come you didn't take the field? And then they realized what was happening, and they all got on the top step of the dugout and started clapping. And then there was a clapping. There was a realization around the whole ballpark, what was happening. And then everybody stood and gave me a standing ovation. Um, there is a side funny story that Ryan Miner was the kid that was replacing <laughs> me that night. Right. He thought it was some sort of prank or some sort of joke. And he really didn't want to take the field. You know, he was hesitant. And I had to convince him, say, Ryan, go play. Get out there and play. Go. You're in the lineup. I'm not. And so I had to convince him to go out there and hesitantly he took the field and uh, and he was the guy that replaced me uh, to end the streak. But I think the way it ended was a positive that everybody, uh, um, it wasn't a negative, nobody was mad, you know, there was not a statement to be made. It was a celebration of an accomplishment. I think we all, we all enjoyed that. Me personally, I uh, went in the clubhouse and said, you know, you know, I know when somebody's not playing, sometimes they go in the clubhouse and, and look around or they watch an inning on TV. Or what about what do those guys in the bullpen do? So I, you know, around the third or fourth inning, I went out to the bullpen and sat with them for a couple innings, uh, just to see what it was like. Because for once, I felt like I was on the outside looking in. Right. When uh, all that time, I saw the game from the context of being in the game, looking out, and it really felt weird that I was uh, I was outside, and I didn't like that. I wanted to be in the mix. I didn't want to be watching it. It was a good celebration. Uh, Eric Davis said. I miss a lot of time in my uh, in my career. Let me tell you what you do on an off day. And he says, first of all, take those spikes off. Go get some soft shoes on. So there was a lot of fun that was uh, was had in that particular night, and it was a celebration. I'm really happy. Ooh, I just uh, said, ooh, non-baseball wise, I just moved into a new house, and there's a, uh, a fox that's just walking across my my back porch. Hopefully it's outside, not uh, in the living room. And you realize that St. Yeah, Francis at, was living outside. in this home before you. Yes, I haven't seen him. He, he has a little den in the hill down the bottom near the water, but I haven't seen him yet. First, first sighting. Where so, were we? I'm, I'm going <laughs> to accelerate for three years. You're wrapping up your career. It's been an unmatched career, Cal. Un, uh, unmatched. But rather than talking about the last game in Baltimore, a week before that you played in New York, and it's 2001, September 11th took place two weeks earlier. <sighs> Ground Zero is still offering up smoke and sirens and the, the misery and the fear and the anxiety and the sadness and the heroes that are still there and the heroes that we're still searching for. And you're up there now playing baseball. Just in like reading about your schedule that summer and as you wrapped up your career, I realize you're at Yankee Stadium. What is it like for you, Cal Ripken Jr., to be in Yankee Stadium knowing all the things that had transpired two weeks earlier? Yeah, that, that was really interesting. Is I was mentally and physically a little exhausted toward the end. 
uh, once I announced that I was retiring in June, you know, this would be my last year. I didn't do it for the purpose of, uh, hey, uh, give me a send off and celebrate, celebrate my career sort of thing. Um, I did it because I had some, some thoughts about what I wanted to do next and how I wanted to help kids. And I'm going to start, start a kid's business uh, with baseball. And I really wanted to, to start the transition early. And while you're still playing, when people are asked, what are you going to do next? I could answer that question. And I wanted to actually do that so it would create a nice transition. Now, the byproduct of announcing early and then answering that question was a lot of teams decided they were going to have to say farewell to Cal. So I got some nice gifts, some funny gifts around, and there were ceremonies that were going through. So, And I was trying to give all of myself to, to everybody in the league. So I was a little mentally exhausted and a little overwhelmed as it was going on. But then 9-11 hit, you know, when we came back. And then all the emotions and all the feelings that you had, and all of a sudden you put things in perspective that, you know, I'm playing a game. You know, this is, uh, this is serious life stuff. And we all were trying to figure out what that meant. Were we at risk? how that was going to work. And so baseball did a really nice job of acting as sort of a distraction to some of the, uh, some of the fears and some of the feelings that we had. And you could pour yourself into baseball, which I did. But I do remember when the week, the, the season then was altered and I was supposed to end the season in New York. The last game of my career was supposed to be in New York. And then the season got pushed back a week and I ended at home. But when we went into we made our road trip, one of our first road trips. I think we went to Toronto, Boston, and then New York. And it was right afterwards. I remember it was really weird flying. And then it was especially weird coming into Boston and New York, um, um, just yeah. based on what happened. The Boston fans were fantastic, period. You know, they didn't. there was no real formal ceremony. They had a little bit of say goodbye. But every time I came up for my four games in Boston, they stood up without any sort of prompting and just gave me a standing ovation every one of my at-bats, which was really cool. And I didn't think they liked me that much when, uh, <laughs> when we were playing against When they them. boo you, but it means they love you. So, yes, I, right. I, I think they proved it in the standing O's. When I went into New York, they had a bunch of kids that they had brought to the ballpark. They'd lost their dad, whether it was first responders, whether it was firemen, whether it was policemen. You know, they had brought in a lot of kids in there to – to give them an experience. I don't know whether it softened the blow of losing your dad um, or not. And I came over there to meet with a bunch of the kids and just sit down there and, you know, you sign a ball or play catch with them or do something that could help, not knowing what that would be. I was looking into the eyes of eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, and my son was eight at the time. And so that was really impactful to me is that the emotion of uh, what had just happened is that there's many kids that are going to move on without their dad. It made me start to think about my own, my own life. And at that point, you know, mentally, um, you just kind of surrender to the whole process. And in the last part of my baseball career, I wouldn't think it was my best statistically, but I thought it was uh, the feeling uh, of being part of something and doing something for so long. I was able to sort of relax and, and say goodbye in a way that uh, was good. I wish 9-11 didn't occur and it didn't impact that last season you know, at all. I think we all would, would realize that. But uh, in many ways, it put things into perspective and it really uh, it gave me a chance to understand what's important. Cal, you've done so much charitable work. And so the, the next question I'm going to ask you is completely unfair, but here it comes anyway. It's kind of like asking you to pick your favorite kid. So good luck on this one. Is, is there one 
experience in all the outreach that you've done, all the hospital visits you've been part of, all these little kids you play catch with who no longer will be able to play catch with their own dad. Is there one visit, one kid that you remember that you want to share right now? One story? You know, I don't think there's one particular kid. There's been some stories with the foundation, some of the stories that we're able to help them in ways and without knowing what their full background is. I will tell you, if you ever, if you're curious about some of the kids that we help and some of the kids that you come into interaction with, if you ever looked at Curtis Martin's story, we honored Curtis Martin at our gala uh, last year. And I had no idea of his upbringing and some of the things that he had to uh, overcome and deal with. We helped build a field in Pittsburgh where for him, that athletic field, uh, you know, he's playing football uh, in the afternoon, but sometimes at night, you know, he called them real life fire alarms. Something would happen if there was a shooting in the neighborhood or something would happen. The safe place for everybody to go was the uh, football field. And they all ran almost as if you're in school and you do a fire drill and you got to go to a certain parking lot so everybody knows where you are and you stand outside. The football field was that to him. He wanted to go back and he wanted to actually redo that uh, field back there. And, and he's gone back and helped many different kids. But he didn't even like football. But football was a way for him to, uh, to help other people and, and get out in some ways. Many of those kids, they're thought to be, they're lost. You know, they're, they're not young enough anymore to, to shape them. Uh, they're lost cause. We as a foundation, Cal Ripken Senior Foundation, we target those kids. Mm. And we try to use sports or use, uh, I mean, we use baseball. We try to speak to them in a language where we can create partnerships and mentorships and we can uh, offer advice and we can help them. So there's a lot of kids like the Curtis Martin story. And I think it'd be really good for um, all your listeners, if you're curious at all, go back and listen to uh, Curtis Martin's Hall of Fame speech or listen to him. He's an unbelievable communicator and speaker, but the reality of his story is one that really makes you want to help. What was it that made you really want to help? You've won all kinds of awards. We could go through all the baseball, the gold gloves, everything else, but you've also won a lot of humanitarian awards. These are not easy to win. It's a highly competitive market out there. Cal, what is it that drives you to want to do more good in the community? I think it's a simple formula. Is My mom and dad were community-minded from a small town. They contributed with their time and their effort. He was in the minor leagues, didn't have a whole lot of money to, uh, to give. And I remember my mom's general plan for me was, look, you can, be a, you can be a big league baseball player and then think about how many people you can help. It was always sort of a charitable-minded thought or people-minded is really, that's a better way to put it. It's not, it's not charitable. It's, uh, it's more people to people. And so I thought of the platform getting to the big leagues because I had models like Eddie Murray and Al Bumbry and Singleton, you know, many people that wasn't from Baltimore that came from other parts of the country, but they came in, made it their home, and then they put their money into our little community. So I thought if I ever sign a big contract, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to do that. But in the process, I was saying yes to all, all these causes. And I felt good that I was, uh, you'd be able to use my baseball platform to help. And it wasn't until really that uh, I lost my dad. I lost my dad and he was only 63 years old to lung cancer. We started looking at what, what was dad's legacy that um, we started shaping our time and efforts in a more narrow way to really focus on what we thought dad's legacy was and and really was helping kids. Dad helped kids by doing free clinics um, to them and really talk to them in a baseball sense. But the real beauty of uh, watching dad was he wasn't really talking about baseball. He was talking about life. 
and he was trying to create, you know, situations where he could be helpful um, in uh, in some of those kids' lives. And I witnessed that as a kid. So we really started to focus our efforts on what we thought dad's legacy was. And the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation, you know, has uh, given us that, that uh, platform. We're a national foundation now, virtually in every state. We have programs in every state. We're going to build our 100th field um, this year when we call them youth development ballparks, sort of outdoor classrooms where they can do anything they want and it's a safe place for them to, to do our programs. So each one of those fields costs uh, in excess of a million dollars. So if you add it all up, we've raised and, uh, and spent um, $100 million to help kids in all these different cities. And, and we're really making an impact um, at the grassroots level on some of these kids. So that makes me feel good and that motivates me. But I think the motivation was to take a general feeling of help and really focus it in a direction that was important. And dad's death really made us think in those terms. So we spend most of our time focusing on the at-risk kids, those middle school area kids that we deal with. Cal, when you when you have a conversation again with your father on the other side of eternity, do you think he'll be more proud of you for what you did in baseball or what you've done after baseball? <laughs> you know, dad used to speak uh, in baseball language all the time. And he would teach us about what's right or what's wrong with the analogies of baseball. But he really uh, was speaking to us about life. So really, it's your journey through life. It's uh, what you do in life. It's how you help. Dad had baseball dreams, too. He got hurt um, as a catcher. He had two foul balls hit off his arm. He didn't have much of a medical choice. You know, he didn't couldn't throw for a number of years. So he went into helping other people get their big league dreams. He became a really good teacher. Um, not only in baseball, but a life coach. Mm. And so I think if, if uh, dad was viewing, I think he'd give us pretty good marks for what we did in baseball, but he'd also give us pretty pretty good marks on what we're doing in life. Coaching us in that direction, I think he'd be really proud. It would be funny to me because it'd be a little bit of a conflict. He was always someone that thought, I want to significantly help a few people and not kind of spread my influence out where I can't spend time with them. So uh, he would probably say in some ways that you guys are getting too big for your britches. You need to focus <laughs> on what, what's in front of you. But uh, we're trying to uh, to use the influence and, and we're trying to get more help. We're trying to uh, align strategic partners with kids, people that care about kids. And we clearly don't have an ego to say that we're the only ones that know how to do it because we, we, we realize we're not. If we partner with more people, we can help more kids. And I think dad would be really proud of that because he always cared about the strategic alliances or, or like-minded people doing things. It was very much a team team sort of uh, thought process for him. Kyle Ripken Jr., we uh, are nearing the end of this game. It's a ninth inning. There are two outs. There are seven rapid-fire questions to wrap us up. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. So we'll bust through these real quickly. And then, So number one is, what is the best book you have ever read? I know you've written dozens. You're a prolific author, <laughs> including some children's books, which, by the way, are really good. But what's the best book you've ever read? The, one of the more fascinating books that I read, it was a little philosophical, was uh, Atlas Shrugged. Huh. I did that when I was young. So that's a heavy young, book right and, uh, there, man. I don't know if I can fit it in my book bag. No, it, it is a heavy book, but I mean, uh, you can download it digitally now, take it <laughs> everywhere, and then read it when you want to. There was a certain ideology in there, but the, uh, also the, the Fountainhead was about Howard Rourke as the architect and about uh, his accomplishments and how he, he cared about his trade and how he wanted to be as good as he could about in his uh, in his work. And it's really the... Uh, celebration of of excellence in in uh in that way 
So I like that one. And so I've read that one actually, and it's doing things differently. So look at how everyone else is lining up, and then you go in a different direction is one of the, one of my takeaways from that one. And question number two is what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child on the ball field, a little one, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I, I would say that I was passionate um, as a young player and almost in a form that came out in the form of bad behavior, um, like a temper tantrum. Um, but I would look at it as uh, caring and being passionate and being obsessive um, <laughs> about that. And I think that I am obsessive, uh, but I'd love that feeling mm. that uh, when you immerse yourself into something, um, it, it seems like now as we grow older, your curiosity and uh, takes you in different directions. I wish I could channel all that passion and energy into one thing. That's awesome. Cal, if, you're, if your new home caught fire... And all living things, your family, pets, everything's out. And you had an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one item you come running back outside with? <laughs> it might be my phone. <laughs> <laughs> You're on it, man. We're, we're good to go. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of funny is that a lot of the memorabilia stuff that uh, transferred over, there was cases in which some of the stuff was in and some of it was lent to museums. Some of those things are here. But it's kind of funny. They're more meaningful to the people that look at them as opposed to me. Yeah. I mean, they represent a certain part, but I mean, um, you live that part of your life. So what would I grab? That's a deep question. I honestly don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know what would be significant. To me, material things are uh, um, the nice mementos. And, I, and I, I saved everything. I didn't throw anything out. So at some point in my life, I have to comb through all that stuff. Here's one thing. It's interesting. There was one point in my life when uh, the the consecutive inning streak was stopped. Do you remember that at all? I this... think it was like September of 1987. Yeah. And, and it was in Toronto. Toronto, uh, they hit 10 homers off our staff that night. They blew us out in the ball game. Not only did I play every game, but I had played every inning of every game for five years. By, by the way, Cal, I and think that, dad... that's the most remarkable aspect of the streak, in my opinion. It, it's shocking. I could, it, it was, it's it was shocking, pretty cool, man. but I mean, uh, and I, I could explain it is uh, how much rest do you get if you come out for an inning All right. mentally or physically? <laughs> I mean, you don't. And how much, what's the value of staying in? I would always say the value of staying in is when I was struggling, I could experiment with my last at bat and try to find something for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And if I was swinging really, really well, I wanted to make sure that I continued swinging really well. So I wanted that last at bat so I could rationalize it any way you want. But the thing that I'm trying to say that there is an item that I have um, that's important to me. And it's important to me in a lot of reasons. When I came out of that game, my dad came over to me. He was manager of the club. And he says, what do you think about missing an inning? And I said, what do you think about it? And he said, I think it would be good for you. And I said, okay. And I came out of the game. So later that night, I'm back at the hotel and I can't sleep. And you're, and you're thinking, did I do the right thing? Was, you know, did I give in? What, you know, and you're, you're questioning yourself. So I took out a legal pad and I wrote like 14 pages. Wow. Just with what I was feeling and all that kind of stuff. And in the process of moving, I was in a file cabinet. I picked it up and found it and I reread it. I like that piece. That's awesome. <laughs> it's very personal to me. And it, it was, there was some funny stuff in there that maybe, maybe, uh, I didn't put the contents in in any publication, but maybe maybe it'll be revealed at the right time. <laughs> but it was uh, it was very personal to me, and it had significant meaning, and it looked at a lot of different things. So I might grab that, and put it in a briefcase, and run out run out of the house. That's awesome, man. <laughs> 
So in addition to that letter, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody, Cal, living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to you on that bench? Uh, I would love to talk to Lou Gehrig, mm. um, only because how many people have played in 2,000 games in a row? What are the feelings and what are the things that you had to deal with and come to, come to conclusions with without, without really someone else telling you what to do? I did have a wonderful experience with Sashio Kinugasa. Yeah, I read about that. And Sashio has died fairly recently, maybe within the last two years, I think. And I might get a chance to go back to Japan this fall. And I've been over there, I don't know, six times maybe, three times as an all-star player and uh, gone over there a couple other times on behalf of the state. It was an interesting conversation. We're sitting on the bus and he doesn't speak very good English. Um, I don't speak very good Japanese. But we had an interpreter there, and we had a bus ride that was pretty long. And we, we started sharing notes because he played in 2,215 games. And so the commitment, whether it's in the Japanese Baseball League or whether it's in uh, Major League Baseball, the commitment and the feeling is still the same. And so having uh, talked about when you physically feel tired after you play 15 innings the night before and you have a star pitcher facing you the next day, it was an interesting conversation. I found out that his it wasn't his desire to break Lou Gehrig's record either. You know, it was a sense of responsibility that he had and uh, came from within him. And so my conversation with Lou Gehrig is I'd love to know that. I'd love to know, you know, I know that he extended the streak a couple of times um, when he was banged up a little bit, uh, like by came in for a bat or came in for an inning um, and then, then left the game. I started every one of my games. If I couldn't start, then, I didn't think it was, I think I would play. So mm-hmm. I, I would love to know how he felt about the streak. Some of those times, how he extended the streak, why it was important, because he was the middle of the lineup. He was relied upon for many different things. And so that example, uh, I'd love to have that in-depth conversation with him because uh, there's nobody else that I could talk to that's played 2,000 games in a row. Cal, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, I guess we talked about it earlier is, is that, that you belong or believe in yourself, or uh, you have the power in your hands to do whatever you want. If you ever get to that point, I mean, we all have skills, and we all can apply those skills, and we can think and do things, Um, but it's sort of the freedom of uh, what you can become, you know, what you want to become. We live in a place that allows that. The power of your mind, and people would say the streak playing 2,632 games was more of an accomplishment of the mind yeah, than it was the uh, than the f- physical nature. And I and I, I didn't see myself as a physical specimen or that I was resilient. I had good healing powers, but uh, I was determined. And I convinced myself that I could still contribute even when you were banged up a little bit or that today would be a good day, um, even though I was less than 100%. And many times I proved myself it was right. Um, that I could. To believe in yourself and to have the power of your mind, you have the power in your own mind to do whatever you want. So, so part of the reason I wanted to share your story is not at all about baseball. <laughs> baseball is just the context that we're using to draw people in. But the reality is this idea of belonging and believing and showing up. Discipline, resiliency, all this stuff that plays, yeah, for nine innings. But gosh, it's so much bigger than that. So Cal, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I played the game a lot where you say, if you could go back to 21, would you go go back and do it again? And a lot of people would say, yeah, immediately, especially I'll be 60 this year. So, I mean, yeah, we'd like to start the clock over. And then they say, 
could I go back with all the knowledge that I have now? And I thought about my dad thinking when he was teaching 20-year-olds, um, he would say, we try to put 40-year-old heads on 20-year-old bodies. <laughs> you have to experience, uh, you know, some of the things are concepts and they're good to be told, but you still have to experience those things. Right. And so maybe the advice that I would give myself, don't worry so much, try things, experience things, uh, learn from those. I think I lived when, uh, in a baseball life, I, I lived a very channeled life. I mean, uh, I often think in the summer times when a lot of the families would go to the beach and they do other things. My dad was in professional baseball. We traveled to where he was. There was a game every single day. It seemed like the whole world revolved around baseball. And that probably allowed me to focus and, and, and do the things. Like I didn't go water skiing. I didn't go to the beach. I didn't do a lot of things, which sets up, you know, after you leave the game, you can learn to ski and you can do all those things. You could try things. But as a 20-year-old, I would encourage myself to get out there a little bit more, to try some things. Final question for you, my friend. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? <laughs> that reminds me of when I was at the end of my career and retiring, they would say, how do you want to be remembered? Yeah. My answer was to be remembered at all is pretty good. And the other thing that uh, as a baseball player, I wanted to be thought of as uh, we had an expression called a gamer. That if you if you were considered a gamer, then you were willing to no matter what come to the ballpark and meet whatever challenge that was there. I guess in, that's two sentences um, <laughs> to be to be remembered at all, but also you know someone that would be remembered as a gamer. My definition of a gamer. Cal Ripken Jr. No doubt you are a gamer. You will be remembered absolutely. And the, the beautiful thing about your story, man, is not only for what you did over that streak and what you did on the ball field and what you did with the glove and the bat, but what you're doing since you left the game. Uh, you will indeed be remembered. You are a gamer, and that is pretty good. <laughs> it's been fun. Uh, my friends, that is Cal Ripken Jr. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. <laughs> 